You're listening to Time in the Word. Sir Alfred Lord Tennyson penned these words in his famous poem entitled In Memoriam. One great divine event toward which all creation moves. I do not think any human author has ever penned a better description of the second coming of Christ than he did in that phrase. How important is the second coming? Well, consider this. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books, and every author mention it, it is referenced in 7 out of every 10 chapters, about 1 in every 30 verses, for a total of over 300 times in the New Testament alone. In the Old Testament, the second coming of Christ is the dominant theme of every prophet and it is mentioned over 15 times. Based on those facts alone, we can easily conclude that the second coming of Christ is clearly one of the most important biblical themes. In this study entitled, The Second Coming of Christ, Dr. Gonzalez covers both the certainty of Christ's second coming and the ground rules for interpreting prophecy. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his study on end times prophecy. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and spend some time in your word. We pray that the Spirit would open the eyes and and ears of our hearts and of our mind. We just pray that you would teach us what it is you want us to know today, Lord, and help us apply that to our lives so that we may grow in our faith, be conformed to the image of Christ, and allow the world to see you in us. We thank you, praise you, and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, folks, for joining us again. Uh, We are continuing our series in prophecy. Last week, we discussed why it was that it was important for Christians to study prophecy. Today, we're going to look at uh, the second coming. And uh, I'm not going out of sequence. Actually, it'll make a little bit of sense once we get into this. We're still not getting into the chronological events of the future. We're still setting the ground rules for the interpretation and study of prophecy. Uh, so today we're going to uh, take care of some of those uh, important points that need to be made because if we don't understand these preliminary points that need to be made, then we will not successfully be able to interpret what the Bible says about the future of the world and the future of this country and our own futures for that matter. I will approach the study of prophecy as uh, from a premillennial dispensational perspective. And I'll, I know those are two big words, but I'll explain what that means. Uh, it means that as, as, as I approach the scriptures and particularly when I, when, I, when I look to interpret prophecy in the Bible, I recognize that throughout human history, God deals with men in dispensations. There are different economies in world uh, in human history. Now, dispensational premillennialism can be identified by two basic features. First of all, we approach the interpretation of prophecy uh, from a literal hermeneutic. By that I mean that we take the words and the statements found in Scripture and interpret them in the normal way as we would interpret any other literary piece of work. By that I mean this. Of course, you're going to come across times in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, where the text itself is going to demand a different interpretation from a literal interpretation. But only in those occasions do we interpret Scripture differently than than, uh, we would interpret any other book uh, we read. Now, if we know 
that there were many prophecies fulfilled with the first coming of Christ, with the incarnation. If we know that the Bible gave us prophecies concerning His first coming, and we know that those prophecies were fulfilled just the way Scripture said they would, why would we interpret future prophecy or prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled in a different way. If, and we said last week that approximately half of all the prophecies that are made in the Bible have already been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled in the exact same way the Bible said they would be fulfilled. Why would I think of future events, why would I think of, uh, of, of, of a prophecy yet to be fulfilled and approach their interpretation any differently than I, than I, than I would approach the, the, the fulfillment of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled? So first of all, we believe in a literal hermeneutic. We take the words and the statements and interpret them in their normal way as we would. We consider not only the words, we consider the grammar and the historical context in which they were written. Those are very important. Second of all, the second basic feature of a dispensational premillennialist is that we maintain a clear distinction between Israel and the church. There are many today uh, who certainly I would agree are my brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, there are those today who teach that because Jesus was rejected by the Jews, the Jews have forfeited the right to continue being the chosen people of God and that they have forfeited the right to have God fulfill the promises that He had made to them thousands of years ago and that the church has in essence taken the place of Israel. In fact, many uh, theologians and many Christians within evangelicalism, and certainly they are Christians, I don't argue their salvation. We just agree to disagree on this particular point. But they argue and they actually uh, use the term New Israel for the church. Let me just read you something that one theologian wrote. He said, the term Israel always refers to the physical posterity of Jacob. Nowhere does it refer to the church. Although non-dispensationalists frequently refer to the church as the New Jerusalem, there is no biblical warrant for doing so. Many passages indicate Israel was still regarded as a distinct entity after the birth of the church. Israel was given unconditional promises, covenants, in the Old Testament that must be fulfilled with Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. The Church, on the other hand, is a distinct New Testament entity born at Pentecost and not existing in the Old Testament nor prophesied in the Old Testament. It exists from Pentecost to the Rapture. So two basic features in our approach to the study of prophecy. One, we take the words and statements made in Scripture and we interpret them literally. We, in the normal way, as we would customarily interpret any other piece of literature. And secondly, we keep that clear distinction between Israel and the church. Now, that being said, there's a few other ground rules for interpreting prophecy.
and we're going to discuss some of these. Listen, this is important, and you, you might say, you know, why are we talking about this? It is important. If you want to rightly divide the Word of God, and you want the Word of God to have as much impact as it's supposed to have in your life, you need to be able to interpret Scripture in the proper way. If you don't, you can, and listen, this is, we, we talked about false teachers and false prophets uh, last week. Listen, you can literally make the Bible say just about anything you want it to say. You realize that? It doesn't mean that whatever you make it to say is true. You just can make it say whatever you want it to say. If you incorrectly interpret the Word of God, you can make it say whatever you want to say. And we know that's being done because look at all the false preachers, false teachers teaching heresy out there today. We've got congregations busting at the seams with teachers feeding them nothing but lies. So, a few more ground rules for interpreting prophecy. Number one, Remember to compare prophecy with prophecy. It is often said, and it is, and it, and it is absolutely true. There is no better commentary on the Bible than the Bible itself. Okay, listen to a statement Peter made in his second epistle, chapter one, verse twenty. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. You know what Peter's saying here? that no prophecy can be interpreted by itself. You need to compare prophecy with prophecy. Listen, no prophet was ever given the whole picture. If we look at the panorama of the future, if we look at the big picture, that big picture is nothing more than a puzzle. Okay, and prophets who wrote about future events were given pieces to that puzzle. They were never given the whole puzzle. The student of Scripture, what he has to do is he has to go through the entire Word of God and take those pieces of the puzzle, put them together in order to get the big picture. So that's why it's important to compare prophecy with prophecy. We take what Isaiah said about the future with what Ezekiel said about the future, with what Jeremiah said about the future, and Matthew, and Daniel, and John, and Jesus, and we put those pieces of the puzzle together by comparing prophecy with prophecy, and we get the big picture. So one important rule for interpreting prophecy, remember to compare prophecy with prophecy. Number two, remember the valleys between the peaks. Let me give you an, a, an illustration of what I'm talking about. When God revealed future events to a prophet, a prophet sees what has been revealed to him from a particular perspective. Let me give you an example. The prophet is giving a prophecy, and this is that prophecy. This is a peak. We're going to say this is a peak. This is a prophecy, and then he's given a second prophecy, which comes right behind the first one. Okay, now this is a peak, a prophecy. This is another peak, another prophecy. When the prophet looks at what has been revealed to him, all he sees is the peaks, one right after the other. 
not realizing that there is a gap between them. There's a valley between the peaks. It is important to realize that because they did not see the valleys between the peaks, they did not know that there would be history taking place between those two prophecies. For example, Isaiah speaks about both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Yet to Isaiah, he failed to see the gap of history between the two comings because when he saw what he was given, all he could see was the peaks one right after another. So when you are interpreting prophecy, you must remember that there are often uh, valleys, gaps of time between the prophecies. A third one is this. Remember the law of double reference, okay? I, I, don't, I want to make sure I'm not going too fast, okay? First of all, first of all, we, the first point I wanted to make was that we compare prophecy with prophecy. The second point I wanted to make was that we remember the valleys between the peaks. The third one is the law of double reference. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes, <clears throat> this, is, this is God in his you know, omniscience and his omnipotence in his, in his nature, in his essence. Oftentimes, God would reveal something to a prophet. And that revelation had a double reference, meaning oftentimes it would be fulfilled twice. In other words, there was an immediate fulfillment to the prophecy, and there was a fulfillment later on in history about the same prophecy. Let me give you an example. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Ahaz was given a sign because a child was born in his time. So when that child was born, Ahaz received a sign as a result of that birth. It was an immediate fulfillment to what God had said. Now, that same passage tells us that the prophecy was not fully complete until later on in history the child Jesus was born. When Christ came for the first time, when he was born as a babe in the manger, Christ was the complete fulfillment of the prophecy that was made, even though an immediate fulfillment was seen in the days of Ahaz and the extended fulfillment, the complete fulfillment was seen at the birth of Christ. So oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes there is a double reference to a prophecy. It will fulfill immediately and later there will be a more complete fulfillment of the same prophecy as something else happens. In the case here, when Christ was born. Fourthly, and this is the last point I'll make about ground rules for interpreting Bible prophecy, we must remember that figurative language must be interpreted scripturally. Listen, this is where we get into a bunch of stuff with a lot of people who teach a bunch of stuff they have no business teaching because they simply don't understand these basic rules of interpretation. Take, for example, Daniel or the book of Revelation. You know, a lot of people won't even study the book of Revelation because it is so full of symbolism and figures of speech that they just don't get it.
Well, let me encourage you by saying this. First of all, you will get it. If you are a child of God, you have within you God the Holy Spirit, whose ministry in your life is to teach you what the Word of God means. And you have the Scriptures, okay? So the book of Revelation is understandable by any Christian if he sits down and simply asks God to give him understanding. But let me just go back to the point I'm making. Remember that figurative language must be interpreted scripturally. What do I mean by that? Listen, we live in the 21st century. Many of these prophets lived thousands, two, three, four, five, six thousand years ago. We've seen some improvements in technology. We've seen some scientific improvements. We've seen improvements of many kinds as we have learned more about the way things work. We have an advantage today. We can communicate a message in so many different ways and enhance that message because of the many inventions that we have made by the 21st century that it's easy for us to communicate something to a group of people. In the days of these prophets, they didn't have all this technology. Let, let, let me give you an example. I firmly believe that 50 years, not even 50 years from today, 25 years from today, things are going to look very different than the way they look today on planet Earth. We will do things differently because technology continue to ev continues to evolve. I can't explain to you what things will look like 25 years from now because I just don't have what it takes to explain something like that. Let me give you an example. I'm getting complicated. Let me just back up a little bit. How do you suppose John in writing the book of Revelation, how do you suppose John was to explain to the audience to whom he was writing an atomic explosion? Never happened then. I mean, the atomic, the atomic bomb is a fairly recent thing in human history. How is John supposed to explain what an atomic blast looks like, or feels like for that matter? You know what he has to do? He has to resort to the only thing he has, the language he's using at that time. So in order to make the point, he has to use symbolism and figures of speech in order to try to create the picture he wants to create in the reader's mind. Now, there's a few other reasons why there's symbolism and 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 figures of speech in the book of Revelation, for example, you know, this was, if it was intercepted by the wrong people, they didn't necessarily want them to know everything that was being said. But, how does a prophet or a writer of a particular book in the Bible explain what he saw <laughs> was going to occur in the 21st century when he himself lived in the first? It's the same thing for us. At some point, we will not be able to explain the future because we don't live there. And things will be different from what we're used to seeing. 
So what we need to remember is to take figurative language or symbolism used in the Bible, particularly concerning prophecy, and we must interpret that scripturally. And we do that by comparing prophecy with prophecy. We do that by remembering the law of double reference. We do that by remembering the, the, the valleys between the peaks and by taking what the Word of God teaches literally unless it tells us not to do so. Okay? Now, again, most people will not study prophecy because they don't believe they can understand it. Let me reiterate the point I made just a few minutes ago. You are able to study prophecy if you were not able to understand it because you just weren't able to understand it then God would have not included at least the amount of prophecy included because what's the sense? If we can't understand it, why bother? We can. Now, it takes a little bit of discipline. You're just not going to sit there and read it like you read a newspaper or a comic book. It takes a little bit of discipline and seriousness and desire to study it but you can understand it. Again, it's there for, for us to understand. We have the Spirit to help us interpret it, and we have the Bible, which is the inerrant and inspired Word of God, to bring that understanding to us. Now, that being said, let me go to this now. Let's talk about the certainty of His second coming. How do we know He's actually coming? I mean, we talk about the future, and we talk about his second coming, but as Christians, listen, we've already established, we've already established the word of God is the word of God. If for no other reason, prophecy will, will, will serve as evidence for that. You can't deny what history says. And history says a lot of things were fulfilled the way the Bible said they were going to be, thousands of years before they happened. But how do we as Christians know that Christ is actually coming? How can we be certain of his return? Let me give you some interesting facts. Christ, Jesus' second coming, is mentioned in both the Old and New Testament eight times, listen, eight times more than his first coming. Can you believe that? The second coming is mentioned in the Bible eight times more than the incarnation. Interesting fact. Second, only the doctrine of salvation, there's only one doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, that is mentioned more often than the second coming, making the doctrine of the second coming a very important doctrine. Third, Christ's return is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. Every single New Testament writer mentions the second coming. And 23 of the 27 New Testament books either clearly mention the second coming or allude to it. Listen, these are important facts because we're talking about how is it that we know that Jesus is actually coming again. Well, these are important facts to know. Listen, we're going to run out of time, so I'm just going to give you a, a, a few testimonies. Take the testimony of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said. John chapter 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. See, did you hear what Jesus said? If I go, and he went, 
and prepare a place for you, and he's preparing a place for us, I will come back. We have the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, if there, were, if there was only one statement made concerning the second coming, that ought to be enough for us to believe it. But no, God had to include a lot of it because he wanted to make sure we have certainty about his second coming. Let, take the testimony of the angels. You remember when, when Jesus was ascending into heaven and the disciples were gazing up and looking at, 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 at Jesus going into heaven? You remember what the two angels said to the disciples? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, listen, will come back in the same way that he, that you have seen him go into heaven. Let me give you, for example, the testimony of Paul. I'll give you one passage. We're running out of time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, listen to what Paul said. For the Lord himself, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen, we have the testimony of Jesus, of angels, of Paul. I can't even read you the testimony of Peter and John and, and, and the author of Hebrews and James because I'm running out of time. Can we know for a fact that Jesus is coming again? Yes, we can. The Bible is replete with statements confirming and assuring us of the same. We run out of time. We're going to have to close in prayer. We will see you again next week. Father, we thank you for this time. We give you all the glory. Thank you that we have the certainty of your second coming. Thank you that we will experience such bliss and joy when you come to take us to be with you and then as we return with you to set up your millennium kingdom. We give you all the glory and praise and honor in Jesus' name, amen. <music>